Philippians. As you know, we have been coming through the whole Bible. We started our church, really, July 10th is not our anniversary. We're a little bit, uh, you need one of these, somebody? We've got an next one up here. Uh, we start a little bit before that, but we're a little bit, with everything going on, we decided to put it back in July. But two years ago, we started our church, and uh, we told you when we began that, that what we were looking to do was to really just take and take young men and young ladies, couples, young couples, moms and dads, doesn't matter who, that wanted to learn God and learn about God and learn the Bible, and that was our goal. We started going through and talking about some of the basic aspects that everybody needs to know about God, your relationship with God, and how it all works. We spent an enormous amount of time laying all that out and uh, putting all that together. Then, uh, <clears throat> once we got to a certain point, we came back and we started going through every book of the Bible. Uh, you know that on our Bible study on Thursday night, we're kind of tying it all together, trying to put all the material in there to try to get it to work. But what we're, what we're trying to accomplish is, is, you know, in these early stages of our church, is to get the people who really want to build a relationship with God through the Word of God uh, <clears throat> where they need to be in the Bible. That is so vitally important. So many of God's people today, and I, I see this all the time, and it just really, really... Uh, it, it bothers me that how so many of God's people today think that they can have some kind of relationship with God, but never having a relationship with the Word of God where they really find out about God and all that He has. So we're excited uh, in our church. We, uh, uh, we just really love the Word of God. We love the book, and we try to live it as best we can, but we know that it's the absolute infallible Word of God for all things in our lives. So that's how we have been approaching it. For those of you that are visiting today and for those of you that have been around, remind you again, that's what we're all about. And today we've come to the point where we're going to talk about the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians is a great church. You know, this church was founded in the city of Philippi. And uh, Philippi was, the name Philippi means lover of horses. The city was named after uh, the father of Alexander the Great, which is Philip of Macedonia. And... Uh, if you're going through your Bible, coming through the book of Acts, you find that uh, this was one of the cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. This would put it around A.D. 52, somewhere right around Acts chapter 14 or 15. So when Paul visits the city of Philippi, he has a lot to do, if not the central theme, in starting this church, which in our Bibles is called the book of Philippians. And Paul, as I said, first visited the church in 52 A.D. But when he writes this epistle, it's some 10 years later. In fact, this is one of the prison epistles that we talked about when we got into uh, books a couple of weeks ago and we talked about how that he writes some books from, from being in prison. This is one of those books. And he writes this sometime around 62 A.D. from a Roman jail, which would put it around Acts chapter 28, while he's awaiting his trial. And, you know, i got to tell you that uh, this church is my, without a doubt, of all the churches that Paul writes to, this church is my favorite church. You know, when you come through your Bible, you'll find that Paul, he addresses seven churches. He writes to seven churches. And I've always thought it was a great study, and it's something that I've done uh, many, many years ago, how I, I looked at each church and I watched how Paul, what he wrote to them, what he addressed them on, 
And I always watched how he had a different relationship with different churches based on what he wrote them. I also know, and most of you know this too, in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, you find where John writes to seven churches. Next week, when we get into the book of Colossians, I'm going to show you how that the seven churches that John write to, how they match up to the seven churches that Paul writes to. Now, we know from our past studies in the Word of God, we know that, that the churches in the book of Revelation, we know that they represent the seven periods of church history. We know that from a doctrinal standpoint, as you lay out the book of Revelation, you have these churches, seven churches, coming through, starting with the church at Ephesus, which would be the first church around the book of Acts, right up to the church of Laodicea, which is the church of the rights of the people instead of the rights of God, and that's where you and I live today. We live in the Laodicean church period. And we know that as you come through that period of time, and you look at those seven churches, that those seven churches represent a time from the early church right up through the next 2,000 years that brings us up to 2005 uh, with where the church is in and the problem the church has. We know that. Let me tell you something else about it. I know that historically that those churches represent seven local churches that are in the area of Asia Minor when John is living in 90 A.D. I'll tell you something else. I know that those churches also rent, uh, represent in a spiritual way, as you look at it and make the spiritual application, I know that those churches, seven churches, have seven distinct characteristics about them. I personally believe that if you would travel through America, which I've done for the last 35, 40 years of my life, and you'd see churches, visit churches, get to know churches, you would find that churches have characteristics about them. In fact, I think that the seven churches in the book of Revelation plus the seven churches that Paul writes to, they go hand in hand. I believe that if you would travel around, you would find churches that have the same characteristics as the churches that Paul has uh, when he writes to his churches and also the churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. I'll go one step further. <clears throat> churches are made up of people. You'll have in churches people. And obviously, if the churches have characteristics about themselves... Those characteristics have to come from the people that are in those churches. And I'm, not, I'm going to tell you, not, not only do these seven churches that Paul writes to and the seven churches that John writes to represent characteristics of churches, they represent characteristics of Christians in those churches. And that's a true statement. And you're going to find that Paul writes the seven to churches. And to me, it's always been a great study to look, as I said, at each church and see how that their characteristics and how Paul relates to each of them. You know what? You have some churches that start out good, and they wind up bad. That'd be the church at Ephesus, the church that was fully purposed. It started out good, and then it wound out losing its first love, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2. You have churches that never have anything to do with God or the Word of God, and never have. They'd be like the church at Colossia. We're going to study that next week. Then you have some churches and Christians that are all like this, that are so shallow when it comes to the Word of God, they really don't understand the Bible, that they get blown about by every wind of doctrine, every new thing that comes down the road, they fall into. And they're the ones that don't know anything about their Bible, don't teach anything, they're like the book of Galatians. And then you have churches, and you also have Christians. You have churches that are full of spiritual babies. 
They never got past the baby stage. They stay that way. They never really grow into a, a really an understanding of the Word of God, and therefore they, they have all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems. Uh, there's a little church, and I won't tell you where it's at. We drive by it on the way to our church. Years ago, I don't know if Jamie remembers this, but years ago, uh, I took Jamie and we went to this church. This church is, it's, it's just, a, it's got a neat little deal in it. It's just a neat little church. And so I thought, well, you know, it was a Sunday night. I thought, well, I just want to go see what's going on there. I'll tell you what, once I got there, I understood, well, that church will never grow and it hasn't grown. And the same seven cars are in the parking lot today as I drove by that were in how many years ago that was when we drove by. I'm telling you what, this church was, everybody wanted to run everything. And it was one of those things that there was a whole lot of chiefs, but there wasn't any Indians. And I thought to myself, you know what, there's a church that's filled with spiritual babies where everybody, the moment we walked in the door, it wasn't, hi, how you doing, we're glad you're here. It was more like, where you come, where you come from, why are you here, what do you do? I mean, it was all like I was, we just walked into an FBI investigation ring, you know. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that church, everybody, and a lot of churches are that way. I remember one time we went to a church teaching discipleship. We didn't even make it the whole week because the deacons threw us out. The deacons threw us out because they didn't like the fact that people were coming to their church and getting saved. You know what one deacon told me? He says, you and your fang-dangled discipleship program coming in here and bringing all these new people in. Let me ask you a question. How are we going to control these people when they all come in here? I knew where I was at that point, and I knew I didn't have to stay the last two days. So we packed up and came home. But that's the way churches are. And when Paul writes to these churches, and he lays it out just as John does, I love looking at how he addresses these churches. And from that study, the church at Philippi, the Philippian church, is my favorite church. You know, in the course of ministry, and some of you young men and ladies, as you get into the ministry down the line, and you really, really begin to uh, understand how to deal and work with people, you're going to find that in the course of your life dealing with people, you find all kinds of Christians. You find weak Christians. You find baby Christians. You find worldly Christians. You find self-righteous Christians. You find dysfunctional Christians. You find undisciplined Christians. And you, I know you're not going to believe this, but you even find Christians who hate God and the Word of God. I know that sounds like a, an impossible thing. Hey, one of the greatest enemies of the Word of God I ever met in my life was a saved man. And he was absolutely the worst enemy to the Word of God of any, or anybody who believed the Word of God of anybody I met in my life. And yet to this day, I believe he was saved and I believe that he was born again. But you find all kinds of Christians. All kinds of Christians. And then in the middle of that, you have what I call Philippian Christians. And Philippian Christians are the best. And that's why this church is not only my favorite, but this church was Paul's favorite. You're going to find when you study the book of Philippians that Paul spends more time with them laying out more intimate details with them than any other church that he writes to. This church was a joy in his life. This church was a bunch of people who just wanted, men and women who just wanted to know what God said. They wanted to be more like God. They wanted to know more about God. And I mean, all they wanted to do was for Paul to tell them more about God and His Word. And every once in a while in your life, you find men and women just like that. They're not around very often today, but you find them just like that. And that's why this church is such a scarce church 
in, in the world today. Here's a group of people who just want to learn about God, want to learn everything they can about God, and they just want to get God's Word in their hearts and in their lives, and they just want to spend all the time they can. And boy, that's why in this book, Paul writes some of the most incredible doctrinal, spiritual concepts for your life and my life to really help us build our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, as you go through life as a Christian, and some of you, most of you probably already got this figured out, you're going to find and understand that there are all kinds of people, all kinds of Christians. And just as different Christians have different characteristics and personalities, some good, some bad, some indifferent, you're going to find churches are the same way. You know, the first message I ever heard as a young man that really impacted my life, I was 11 years old. Maybe I was 10. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember that I, my mom and dad took me to... We, went to church, and for, I went to church that morning, and that morning I got to hear, as far as I am concerned, one of the greatest preachers that, that ever existed in the 20th century. His name was Bob Jones Sr. Bob Jones Sr. was one of the old Philadelphian preachers. He was one of the greatest preachers I ever heard in my life. I, 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 John's got a tape of him preaching. In, is it in chapel? Isn't where he's preaching, John? And boy, I'll tell you what. This is back in, what, 1920 or 1930? It's really early. He died in 78 or 76, someplace in there. And uh, you know what? He got old and senile in the last years of his life. And it was, a, you know, they had him on campus down there at Bob Jones University where uh, he was the founder of Bob Jones University. And, and they had him on campus down there in the last years of his life. Uh, he, they would find the old man wandering around the uh, campus. And he would have a Bible in a hand and a suitcase and have his coat on and his hat on. And they'd say, Daddy, where are you going? Daddy, what you doing? He, he was, couldn't preach anymore now, and he was senile. And he was walking around that campus, and he would say, I'm going to the train station. i got to preach. i got to preach. i got to find the train station. i got to go preach. I thought to myself, wow, here's a man that preached all of his life. And when he got old and senile, all he could get in his brain was going out to preach. He was a great soldier. He preached one of the greatest messages I ever, I ever heard that, that talks about the different characteristics of Christians in a different way. And I was about 10 or 11 years old when I heard him preach, and I never forgot that message. And that message impacted me as a young boy, and it's the one thing that I thought about. Here I am, 55 years old, 55 years old, and I still remember it almost every day of my life in some way when I'm dealing with people. You know what he preached? He preached out of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, and he preached the sermon, Some Old Dogs I Have Known. And you've know, you got to understand, you couldn't preach this sermon in most churches today, old dogs I have. No, you defend too many people. But all oh, that old boy, he didn't give a flip. And you know what he did? He took the concept in the Bible that people are different. And people have different characteristics. How many of us have always heard that, you know what, people buy dogs like who they are? Now, I believe that's true. And I'm an expert on dogs. My family, if you want to know what's wrong with me, just look at my family. I mean, my family back in Ohio. I mean, I love dogs. I've had 15 dogs in my lifetime. I've had every kind of dog there is. I know dogs. My mother is worse than I am right now as we speak. And she's what, 80 years old, 79, something like that? She's got, just talk to her this week. She's got six dogs and 20 cats. Oh, no, my sister gets better. My sister got nine dogs and 52 cats. They just bought a house that's got 12 garages in it. 
mansion. And they ain't got any kids. I went to her house one time. She had two room bedrooms upstairs, two dogs per bedroom. That was their room. Had their names on the door. Now, I'm not that bad. But I'm pretty bad. But people wear things with what they like. Don't laugh at me. I've seen you wear a fishing shirt, and you like to fish. I've seen you wear... Where's Jimmy? I, well, let's forget the shirt you got on this morning. Why didn't you wear that neat car shirt you got on this morning? I know what some of you like to play golf. You got little golf shirts. I like two things in life outside the Bible. One, dogs. And my, I just had to bring this because my wife won't let me. The other one's astronomy. Now, she won't let me wear this. I think this is a cool tie. <laughs> Honey, you like that? Don't lie to your preacher. Now, I think that's a nice tie. See, I like astronomy. That's a good tie. You like that tie? You like that? It's all right. Take time to fix your hair this morning or you just come on into church. I'll get back at you. I, you like it better now? Does it look better? I like that tie. Now that's a tie. you like, oh, Minnie, you like that, don't you, Minnie? You like betcha you do. We wear things like the way we are. And I'm telling you right now. We do things because of things we like it. And I'm telling you, we, we buy our dogs by the way we are. Old Bob Jones Sr. knew a great troop. Because in the Bible, un Gentiles are likened to dogs. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that's what it says. And the Gentiles in the Bible, saved or unsaved, are likened to dogs. That's why in the Old Testament you find all those acronyms about Gentiles likened to dogs. And I'll never forget, old, and I, this is a true fact, I'm telling you. People are like, churches have different characteristics, and it's based on people, and people are like dogs, Gentiles. And when you go out there, you know what old Bob Jones getting out there? He said, you know, you got some Christians out there that are like collies. They're slow, loyal, patient, trustworthy, kind, lovable, friendly, and all they want to do to please. And I, years later, I thought, I know Christians just like that. Then he says, you got some that are like chihuahuas. Yappy, snappy, nervous, wild-eyed. I always looked at a chihuahua and thought it was a little Barney Fife from Mayberry. We got to, you know, you know what? Now, do not let me offend you if you love chihuahuas because I love all dogs. Hey, we got across the street from my house a little dog called Bandit. Bandit's not a real dog. It's a rat with a genetic defect. And somebody showed it to these poor people as a dog. And they put him out at 2 o'clock in the morning. For what reason, I don't know. They put him out at night all day long. And that dog barks at every day. I mean, when the streetlights come on at dusk, that dog barks. I like him. I'll take biscuits. I'll go over. And I'll pet that dog. And I'll talk to Bandit. He's ugly, but he's cute. Not my kind of dog. I like all dogs. That's why I like you guys. <laughs> See? I, get a, I like all dogs. But let's face it. There are different dogs. There are different dogs. And old Bob Jones Sr. said, you got some like collies. He says, you got some like chihuahuas. 
He says, you got some like bulldogs. Bulldogs are slow. They're tenacious. They're stubborn. They're good-natured. But they're ugly. I can't help it. They are. If you got a bulldog and you, I love your bulldog, but it looked like he was chasing a truck and it stopped and he didn't. And it, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. He says, you got poodles. Dainty, high strung, prissy, effeminate. I mean, I mean, I, I, I've had two poodles. We had one in our family. Yeah, Fifi. I bought your mother one, Pierre. Heavy on the first part of the name, light on the second. Pierre was a big one. Fifi was a small one. Fifi didn't walk anywhere. My dad carried her around in his arm. We'd get her shaved, get her trimmed. She had a little boo-foo on top of her head, tail out with a little ball on it, trimmed around the legs, and she'd push around in the house like she was the Queen of Sheba. And then the old boy said, then you got German shepherds. Now, I've had two German shepherds. I like German shepherds. I got three labs right now. I only did that because I'm more biblical than I used to be. I got all three colors. I got black, I got white, and I got brown. And Noah's three sons were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. One was black, one was white, and one was Shemite brown, and I got all of them. I'm biblical. Call me Bible Bob if you want, but that's where I come from. <laughs> but German shepherds are alert. They're strong, they're fearless, they're loyal, they protect their owner, and yet they're submissive. I like, I don't get to watch them much anymore, but I used to like to watch cops. And the only reason I like cops is because I like to watch for the dogs. Because you, I, I love it. And I always thought to myself, now why can't people figure this out? If I'm building a church, I know, I know, I know, but if I want a church, I know you got all kinds of people. I know you do. But you know what? I want collies and German shepherds. I do. I, I mean, I want, I, that's what I want. And you can be, any, you can be whatever, but I, that's what I'm, that's what really gets things done. I mean, you watch cops and you got some, you know, you know they have police dogs and police dogs are, are really high trained dogs. And most of them are German shepherds. I love it. I walked up there one night, they had this guy that was up in the attic. And on this ceiling, it was a net, right, no, it wasn't this high, but it was as high as the ceiling in your house. And the police are down there with their guns, you know, and there's one little hole to go up there, and this guy's not coming down. And no police officer is going to go up there and say, stick his head up there, hey, <laughs> you're, under, you're not going to do that. What do you do? You get the dog. And they told this guy, come on down, we're going to send the dog up. Now, that's all the dog had to hear. Now, this dog, German Shepherd, and it pans over to him, he's ready to go. He's got, he's got a little ladder in his back pocket. He's ready to roll. And after this guy won't come down. They take that dog. I've never saw this in my life. They grabbed the, the trainer, got that dog by the collar, got him by a gruff of her back there, and that dog leaped, and he put that dog, and that dog caught that thing. That guy pushed him up, and for the next 35 seconds, you heard the loveliest sound you ever heard in your life. That guy gave up faster than anything else. And that, and that dog, he comes, the guy comes head down out of that thing, fell on the floor. That dog is right on top of him. And in the middle of it, that guy, guy handler says, cut! And that dog just stopped. He's barking. He wants more, but he is submissive. Whew. Now, I could just see that. Come on, dog. We're going to send up the dog. All right. Bring in Fifi. <laughs> 
bring in, bring in Pierre. Hey, yeah, would you shoot Pierre when we throw him up there? I'm telling you, you got different kinds of Christians, and they make up different kinds of churches. And God's people, Bob Jones Sr. said that he, he knew some old dogs in his life, and he did. And I'm telling you, that's the way it is. Uh, you know, and I've got another thing I'll tell you. I read this stuff all the time. And I hear all these guys. I know all this stuff comes out. You know, they talk about, well, the pastor, he's the shepherd. The pastor, he's the shepherd. You know what? <clears throat> I read in my New Testament. I don't find one place anywhere in the New Testament. I never find it in Paul's place where Paul makes any reference to me as a pastor being a shepherd. I just don't. Now, Christ is the chief shepherd, no question. But I never read anywhere in the Bible that I as a pastor am supposed to be a shepherd. He's the shepherd. You know what my job is? My job is one of sheepdog. I'm not a shepherd. I'm a Gentile dog saved by the grace of God who God has put over the flock of sheep. And my, have you ever been out? One time I preached out in Montana and I spent out, I stayed on a ranch out there. Greatest experience of my life. And I'll tell you what, I got to watch. They took me out early in the morning, you know, and on horseback. Oh, it was great. I mean, this, this ranch was, we think of farms, you know. This ranch was like 200,000 acres. I mean, they had cattle here and sheep here, and it was just unbelievable. Mountains all around you. You'd ride two days on horseback to get to the upper pastures, you know, where they, they have the cattle and all that. And they went out that morning to bring the sheep down or whatever they were doing, and they put me on horseback, you know. And, man, I'll tell you what. I wish you, I looked the cowboy. I, there's a lot of things I don't, I looked the cowboy for. I had chaps on. I had me one of them crinkled up hats. I had, they put spurs on me. I had spurs that jingle, jangle, jingled. I mean, I was walking around there. You couldn't tell me from the real cowboys. End of the day, you could. I was riding high in a saddle and my blisters broke. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what, it was a rough day on a horse. You ride all day on a horse sitting down, you ain't used to it. I don't know where they ever got the idea it was called tenderfoot, but anyway. We're riding those horses down up there, and I'm up there, and all of a sudden up there, there's this old sheepdog. And this sheepdog's running along. He gets up there, the other one comes up with him, and those, dog, those sheep are spread out everywhere. Those dogs circle those sheep. They bring those things in and closer and closer. When they got a sheep that's stray out there, they go nipping at them. They barking at them. They're chasing them, and the sheep are running in there. And before you know it, we're just sitting on the horses. And those dogs had those things all in the right place. It was one sheep way out there, way out there. The old boy said, get him. Boy, that old dog goes down there, both dog barrel out there. They, and I said, man, they, I mean, are they going to? He said, oh, he won't hurt them. They won't, they'll never bite the sheep. They never hurt the sheep. They just get the sheep back in the fold with the other sheep. And I thought, amen. I'm telling you what, I'm not a, pa I'm not a shepherd. I'm a sheepdog. And when you become a pastor, you become a sheepdog that watches out. You know what happened? When they got all those sheep done, the guy says, come on, we're going to go down. I says, where's the dog? And he said, didn't you see one sitting up there? See him sitting up on the side of a hill. The other one's sitting over here on the side of the hill. And I thought, what are they doing up there? He said, once they get them all down, they just stand up there and make sure while the sheep are eating and feeding, no wild animals come in to get the sheep. I thought, that's some pretty good dog. Old Bob Jones Sr. knew what he was talking about. So you have different personalities of Christians, different characteristics of churches. And I want to tell you something. Every once in a while in the Christian world, you find some German shepherds and you find some collies. 
Every once in a while in the Christian world, you find some Philadelphian, Philippian Christians who just really want to learn all that they can about God. And Paul has a more intimate relationship with this church than he does the rest. You know why? I'll tell you one of the reasons why. We're going to get to all of them today. He doesn't have to wade through a lot of baggage to begin to work with them and to help them. And let me just say this. I know that when people come into church, people have problems. That's what it's all about. I never. I want when people come into a church. I know that most of them are dealing with some issue in their life, and you know what? I I think that's the greatest thing in the world because that's the first step for us to build a relationship in the Word of God. I I never never expect people coming into the church. Sometimes they don't, but but most of the time I never I never I never care people coming into the church that 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 have problems in the church. What gets problematic is when people who are in the church cause problems. That's the problem. Having problems is no problem. Causing problems becomes a problem. And this church at Philippi stands alone in one respect. It loved Paul and understood Paul's mission, and it was Paul's favorite. You see, this church had seen him suffer for Christ, and they knew and understood that he paid the price for them to be there as a church. He was evidently involved some way very intimately in winning many of them to the Lord and starting that church. And they never forgot what he had done for them. And they never got sidetracked from the great principles that he gave them. This church never took for granted. They never took for granted the Apostle Paul in their life. And I'm telling you, because of that relationship, they had a special relationship with him and he had a special relationship with him. And every once in a while in the ministry, every once in a while in the ministry, you find men or women who all they want to do is learn about God. They want to just get their marriages right. They want to get their families right. They want to get their own selves right. They just want to find a place that will quit taking advantage of them where they can just have all of the Bible they want. All of the Bible they want. You know, the theme of the book of Philippians is the mission of the church. No question about that. That's another great reason why this church and Paul gets along. Because Paul's heart was the mission that God called him to do. You know, each of us, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, just a little bit. Each of us have a mission. God saved you and I for a purpose, for a reason. And this church understood that. You know, my philosophy of ministry is very simple. I've always tried to keep it simple. And uh, I know that going through life, you find all kinds of Christians. But every once in a while, you find Christians that just want to learn God. They want to learn all they can about the Bible. They're tired of the formalized religion. Their time of playing the games. Their time of putting the emphasis on money and everything else instead of the Word of God. They just want to go someplace where they can just learn the Bible to help raise their kids, to help them have a better marriage, to help them have a better relationship with God, and just to learn where they want to go. You know what? I'm telling you. And sometimes, not very often, but sometimes you find people just like that. And to that kind of person, my response is this. You know what? You can have as much of me as you can stomach. My philosophy of ministry is better, very simple. I've told you this from day one. My main job here, my mission in life, as a child of God, my mission in life is to take young men and young ladies, young couples, moms and dads, anybody at any age, my mission in life and my job in life is to take you and help you 
be the best you can be, not only to your husband and to your wife and to your kids, but to the Lord Jesus Christ as you build that relationship that someday you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ and you'll get everything coming to you because the fact that you put your emphasis in the right place. You found out the mission that God has saved you for and then you invested the rest of your life in that. We're going to talk about that as we go on here a little bit. But I love people that just love the Bible. I love people that just want to learn the Bible. I love people that just want, to, just want to live what the Word of God says. And I know none of us are perfect. I said it before. All of us have problems. I don't care. I don't care what problems you have today. Whatever problems you have in your marriage, in your personal life, with your children, with, at work, whatever. Whatever problems you have can be solved when we get to the book that solves them. There's a big difference, as I said, and I'll say it again, between having problems and causing problems. And I thank God that we've got a church here that does not cause problems. It helps solve the problems, and I'll tell you, it's a great thing. These people had come to the place that they understood. The great Proverbs chapter 27, verse 7, which says that the full soul, full soul, loatheth the honeycomb, but that a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. They'd come to the place where even the tough things in the Bible were sweet to them. There was nothing you could say to this church that they wouldn't look and take it internally and, and digest it internally first. They didn't get offended by what Paul told them. They're not like the church at Corinth that was asking for proof of who he was in the midst of the greatest Christian that ever lives ministry. They weren't arguing with him over other things and disputing with him. This church, simply put, said, Paul, we know who you are. We know God puts you in my life. And you can tell me to stand on my head for 20 minutes a day and I'll do it. They simply wanted to build a relationship with God. That is the church at Philippi. They have the same mission as Paul. The same mission as Paul. The same mission as Paul. And of course, sometimes, you know, when you come through the ministry and you deal with people, and like I said earlier, you find people who come in from all walks of life. But you're going to find a brand of Christian. And they're still out there today. Our church is living proof of it. And I know there's more out there. If somebody wants to learn the Bible, build a relationship with God, as I told you when we started this church, I will spend an hour a week with anybody who wants to learn the Bible. You can sit down in my home and you can ask me questions about the Bible. You can bring your list. I'll teach you something. I'll give answer any question that you have. There is nothing that you can't ask me. You can, know, you can have whatever time you want to do whatever you want to help you build your relationship with God because we will take that and we will build into your life those things that we need to have. I've told you from day one, I am not interested in building the biggest church in the world, just the best. And the best has to come down to your relationship with the Word of God. Hey, you know how it is? You love that book. I love that book. There ain't nothing we can't work through in life because the common bond is the mission. And because of this Bible-based love, for God and the Word of God in their relationship, this church was Paul's favorite. Paul is more intimate. He is more personal with them. He shares with them great principles of biblical doctrine that are practical for their everyday life more than any other church. 
Not till you get the first and second Timothy, where Paul now switches gears and he deals with a young man preparing him in the intimate fashion for the ministry, do you get this kind of material. This book is built around nine of the greatest New Testament spiritual concepts of which every Christian's life is built on. If I would take the Christian life and solidify it down to nine things, they'd be found in this book. And most of them you already know, I'm sure. I'm going to go through them and I'm going to show you why this church had the relationship that it had with Paul and how Paul dealt with them on these nine intimate relationships, giving it to them. Now we're going to come through chapter by chapter, and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 1 teaches and is built around two of the great mission verses for your life and my life. And it says in chapter 1, verse 6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this to you. God has a mission for you. There's a reason God saved you. There's a reason why God saved you when he did. If you read Jeremiah chapter 1, then you know that God is in charge and knows through foreknowledge everything that is going to happen, even though God keeps the hand of free will in it and lets man choose it. God knows exactly what is going to happen and, of course, God's whole plan around this universe and this world is built around that Bible that lays it all out. There's a reason why God allowed you to go through the events in your life. There's a reason why you've got the problems you're struggling with right now, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your personal life. It doesn't matter to me. I never care what problems a, pe a person has because I've learned over the years that if you do what's right with the Bible and you focus the problems you have to solve them down the line, you'll be more valued to me because I can put you in a situation that you can deal with somebody else with the same problem because you have learned through those problems. How That's why I want to be intimately involved in helping you learn that Bible one-on-one -on -one every way we can. Besides that, hey... Isn't it fun? <laughs> you bet it is. One of the greatest times I have in a week is the times I spend with you guys just going through the Bible. Sometimes I go home, I feel like, I feel like somebody put a vacuum cleaner on both my ears and sucked everything out backwards. I mean, it, but you know what? What a great feeling. God has a mission for you. Let me ask you a question. And I'm talking to Christians now that maybe you've only been saved a short time or maybe, you know, you never really got into a church or never really got into the Bible and you kind of just been finding your way along and now you're looking for something. I'm not talking to you about this. I'm, let me ask you a question. If you've been saved, duly saved and really supposedly into this thing for 5, 10, 15 years, do you know what your mission is? And don't tell me it's winning people to Christ. That's not your mission. That's just a byproduct of your intimate relationship with Christ. There's another reason why God has saved you. I talked last week when we talked about the church at uh, Ephesus, and I told you that the church at Ephesus had a mission. That mission was for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It was for the work of the ministry. That is my mission. My mission is clearly defined in my life. There's one thing I do better than anything else in my life, and I'm not bragging to tell you about it. I'm just telling you, this is what God has called me to do. This is my mission in life, and that is taking men and women wherever they're at in life and getting them from this point to this point in this book. I do that better than anything else I do in life. You know why? That's what God's called me to do. God's called me to take men and women, young couples, 
and take them from a hopeless world where they're struggling with problems in life and put their feet solidly in the Word of God where they can use biblical principles to make every decision in life. Hey, we live in a bad world out there today. We live in a world that wants to damn your kids' souls to hell. We live in a world that wants to destroy your marriage. We live in a world that wants to tear apart everything that you hold holy. Let me tell you something. And you won't get it by just going to church and sitting down. You won't give it by giving all your tithe and giving it. You get it. Forget that stuff. You get it by getting in a book that God gave you and taking the time to learn the principles to solve where you're at and then go where God wants you to go and fulfill your mission. And he says, being confident of this very thing, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this, in addition to that, this is where the first attack of the devil is going to be. The devil wants to keep you from fulfilling that mission. And he's been very successful in most of God's people's lives. He wants to get them focused on all the wrong things. He wants to get them involved in all the wrong things. And life is very simple. At the end of your Christian life, you're going to look back and your epitaph is going to be simply this. Here's a man or a woman that found out what God wanted to do with them in their life and did it, or here's somebody that didn't. You see, that verse says that God's going to, that God is going to, He began a good work into you and He's going to perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That's the rapture of the church, the day of Jesus Christ. And the truth of that verse is, God is going to perform it in your life whether you're willing or whether you're not. You know why? Because at the end of your life, God's going to hold you up as an example to everybody else of how to do it or God's going to hold you up as an example of how not to do it. You'll either, train, you'll either make your marriage work and raise your kids right and you'll be held up by other believers to look around and want to find it for young couples struggling. They'll say, I can go here because there's a man and a woman that had it together or you're going to go this way wherever you go. At the end of your life, it will simply be this. Here is somebody that figured it out and went along with the program, and here's somebody that did their own thing. Life is simple. And I'm going to tell you, that is one of the greatest verses, greatest principles for you and for I, understanding that God saved you and I for a reason. He began a good work in you, and He wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. But the second great principle goes along with the first one that's found in chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know what? If I'm with honest with you this morning, I'm, most, I'm almost embarrassed to quote that verse today to God's people. I'm almost embarrassed to quote that verse to a child of God today in the situation that we live our lives in. If there's any, if there's any banner for Christianity, it is the banner for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, when I was studying church history to find out my roots, because I knew that I could never understand what I have to believe now if I didn't understand where that line came from. And I could never make my stand in the future if I didn't know where I was at now and where I had come from. I had to understand in my life why I believe the things that I believe, why I preach the things that I believe. And very honestly, I find most of God's people today carrying Bibles around and going to churches, they don't have a clue of why they believe what they believe. But that's okay. My job is to help you get there. I'm always looking for new Philadelphian Christians. I'm always looking for Philadelphian Christians that want to just say, hey, Bob, you know what? I'll take the time. I'll give you the time. You give me what I need and help me get this thing together. And brother, you and I are on the way and we'll have a good time because just as that church was Paul's favorite church, those kind of Christians are my favorite Christians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I was coming back there and I read back in the beginning of the 1700s 
a man by the name of Count Zindendorf. Count Zindendorf was one of the old-time uh, missionary found long before the great missionary movements of the world were ever written about. There's not much about Count Zindendorf today. You won't find him held up in the great annals of, of, of Bible colleges when they talk about their missions program. Oh, they'll talk about Livingston. They'll talk about Adonai and Judson. And they were all great men. But let me tell you something. Count Zindendorf paved the ground. Count Zindendorf laid the foundation for what modern-day missions. I know we call William Carey the father of modern missions, and he was a tremendous impact but anything that he learned about missions, he learned it from Count Zindendorf. All the way back in 1727, this saved born-again man, when the Moravians were being persecuted by the church state, who owned great vasts of land, Count Zindendorf allowed them to build a little mission church on his property. A little bit later on, he took those men and women and he began to train them in the Word of God because he had a mission. He knew that he had a mission. His theme was, I have but one mission, he and he only. Wow, I have but one mission, he used to say, he and he only. Today we say, I only have one mission, me and me only. That's where we're at today. Count Zindendorf trained the greatest missionaries that you ever saw in this world. They went everywhere. They understood what it meant to live for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. They understood that their life counted nothing down here, that they had one goal, and that was the mission, the mission, the mission. They understood that one came to this earth with one mission, to die on the cross and save them, that they might fulfill that mission. They built, they built a college or a school where they trained missionaries. When they graduated, they gave them a one-week ticket to wherever God called them in their heart to go. Listen, there were, American, there were Moravian missionaries who came to the United States in the 1700s and in the 1800s who sold themselves into the southern slavery never to be free again that they might be able to reach the black man for Christ. That is a mission movement. And yet today, we, have, we, can't even, we, we, we can't even get to that point. When you speak like this to the average 20th century American Christian crowd, they look at you like you're a frog in a hailstorm. We, we're so desensitized. I actually out at Worlds of Fun yesterday, at the end of the day, we stopped and as we were coming out, they had this dog show. I thought it was a great dog show. I thought the dog, of course, why wouldn't I? I thought it was a great show. These dogs were jumping up, doing all kinds of tricks. I mean, they had a contest, and the dogs who could jump the highest, and the wet dog was just leaping over that thing there. I got so fired up, I went home trying to get my dog to do it. The big old brown, when he comes, he did the best shot, but he didn't make it. He plowed right through the whole fence and busted the thing to pieces. But they tried. I sat down there at the end of the thing. You know what? This lady come out, and I had enjoyed the show, but it grieved me at this point because it brought me, you know, it's nice to go to worlds of fun, kind of check out from reality with all the problems of the world and situations. Just go someplace, throw up on people as you go down to Zambini Zinger or whatever. It's nice. To, and I was just enjoying the day. I was just having a nice time from all, had checked out from everything. And then this dear, sweet lady came out. Place was packed with people. And she got up there and she gave the plea how that they had rescued these dogs from the city pound. And that in America, last year, there were 12 million dogs that had died in pounds without good homes. And I actually saw a woman over here and a man over here, tears running down their face. And I sat there, and for that time it was over for me. I was ready to leave. Because I thought to myself, my, what a place we've come to. 
Well, we'll sit around and weep because 12 million dogs went to the pound and got euthanized and were killed last year, and yet around us, our people are dying and going to hell 90 a second, and we don't do a thing about it. You know why? We've lost our mission. We've lost our, maybe you never had the mission. I don't know. I don't know. Their coat of arms was an altar. One side there was a plow laying up against the altar. The other side there was an ox. And underneath there was a motto of that coat of arms that said, ready for either. They were ready to be hitched to the plow of God and plow the furrowed fields of this planet till Jesus came back or they were willing to lay their life down on the altar of God for the souls of men. And you know what the tragedy is? I tell you that story today. I listen to that story today. Doesn't even move us. Doesn't even move us. You know why? We don't know what the mission is. That's why I'm saying I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for me to read it. You think I can take this verse and I even have a tough time preaching. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I'm telling you, don't you know the mission? The mission, Israel had a mission, she failed. America had a mission, she failed. The church had a mission, we failed. We don't even know what our mission is today. That's why God gave you as a Christian a husband and a wife. That's why when you go back to the book of Genesis, they're not helpmates, they're helpmeets. He gave, made Adam and he gave him a help meet. That help meet was given to him to help him fulfill the mission. When a husband and wife learns that concept, builds that concept into their life, they have kids, they build the kid concept into their life for ministry, and they teach it down the line, it just goes right down the line and the mission gets fulfilled. Live for Christ, forget the rest. The mission now, see, in America, it's tough to do that. We're going to see why here a little bit later on. Chapter 2. Two more great mission concepts of the church and Christian. First one's in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, we always use this verse along with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, talking about how that we have the absolute infallible Word of God, that we have the mind of Christ that God gave us as His children a book that is recording of his mind, his thoughts, that we know exactly what God wants us to do or how to respond in any given situation because of the way that Christ uh, has written it down in the Word of God. And that's true. Nothing wrong with that. But I want you to look at the context of chapter 2, verse 5, and then 6, and then 7. He says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not to be robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to the death of the cross. You see, that verse got more to do with just you knowing the Bible and knowing the Bible is the mind of Christ. The end result of you taking the Bible and becoming more like Christ makes you, should make you more being a servant. That's what he's talking about, being a servant who took upon himself the form of a servant. The form of a servant. We're to be servants. The second great concept found in the next verses, 9, 10, 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that as the name of Jesus every knee should bow to the things in heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is. You know what you got in these great verses from the first one to the second one? I don't know if you found it or not, but you got seven steps down to being a servant, and then you got seven steps that Christ took up to exaltation. That's how it works. You see, the way down with the way up with God is down. <clears throat> a good leader always has to be a good follower. 
A good leader in charge always has to be a good servant first. It's hard to believe that in the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be people, there will be people who are saved people who have to bow their knee to Christ as Lord. And I know we use this verse as for unsaved people, but you better read it again. It says every knee and every tongue. And the context of verse 12 is the judgment seat of Christ. These are great concepts. Why? Because the mission. If you don't get the attitude of a servant in the mission, you just are wasting your time. The mission, the mission, the mission. Then chapter 3. Two more great principles that help define the mission we have. Chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. You come down through here and Paul talks about his personal statement. We're not going to read it this morning. You read it on your own. His personal statement based on the fact that the, all the formal education that he had, all the greater learning and the great degrees that he had, all the time that he spent becoming a Pharisee, a Sadducee, all the, all the meticulous study of the law, all the stuff that he brought couldn't compare to his walk with God and the relationship that he had when he got a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. Let me tell you something. In most churches today, when they look for a pastor, <clears throat> they don't, they're more interested on where he's been to school, how much education he's got, what degrees he's got behind his name, than they are how he walks with God or what he knows about the Word of God. The tragedy, but that's where we're at today. Then to the second thing in verse 10. Oh, what a great one this is. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible, and there's four parts to it. He says this in verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. Oh, wow, that I may know him. You see, that's salvation in the character of God. Once you get saved, then you learn to know who God is. That's my job. <clears throat> that's what I help you do. That's what we do when we break into that Bible in a very basic way. That's what we do when we sit down together <clears throat> and I help you <clears throat> put the Bible together. You ask me your questions. We work through it. We help you begin to formulate and understand how the Bible works. That's my job <clears throat> is to sit down with you and to give you answer every question you have. You have to be the most important thing in this church. And if you're not, then there's some priority out of whack because it is you who are to be edified, to be strengthened, and to be perfected for the work of the ministry. And the only way I know how to do that is to help you understand how to know Him. Show you what He did for you when He died for you on the cross. Show you those everyday characteristics that will make you love Him more than anything else in time. That will heal any marriage. That will heal any family situation. <clears throat> that will bring anything to the right perspective that it needs to be. And, of course, he says the character of God. It's like I taught you when we went through the book of Galatians. You have to have the character of God first, that I may know him, character qualities of God. Number two, power is resurrection. There's the spiritual gifts God got for your life, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. But, you see, you've got to have the character qualities of God before you can have the power of God. You have to know his character qualities first before he'll give you the power of God to do something. Then he says the fellowship of his suffering. We studied that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. The fellowship of his sufferings is simply getting on the same page, understanding that you and I as God's people <coughs> should be in fellowship with Christ's suffering every day. Then the last thing, being made conformable unto his death. You see, as the child of God, this is one of these great 
<clears throat> this is one of these great concepts in the Bible. <clears throat> That's the opposites of life. You see, <clears throat> the Bible says, or the world thinks that if you want to you want to be successful, you got to go up. God says, if you're going to be successful, you got to go down. The world thinks that if you want to have everything you have, you got to you got to get all you can get. Bible says, if you want to keep it, you got to give it away. The Christ, the, the world thinks <clears throat> that you got to be first in everything. The Bible says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. See how it always works around the opposite? It always does. It always does. And for a child of God, you can't really be alive till you first recognize you're dead. Dead to this world. You know what's going to stop most of you? Besides yourself? Is the people that the devil's going to put around you. Once you start to take a stand for the book, you're going to see it unleashed on you unbelievably. They're going to call you a cult. They're going to make fun of you because you believe the Bible is the Word of God. You know, 150 years ago, anybody who didn't believe the Word of God was a cult. Now today in 2005, anybody that believes it's a cult, everybody that doesn't believe it's the norm. I don't think so. But you know what? That's going to put pressure on you. You know how you deal with that? You know how you deal with that? Well, not this week, but next Sunday, we're going to rent an air-conditioned bus. Instead of having church, I'm going to give you one of the greatest object lessons. I've already got it worked out with Newcomer's Funeral Home. There's a man over there that they're going to bury Sunday afternoon who they said that if we come over there at 11 o'clock, so you need to be on time. By the way, you all were on time this morning. Some of you even early. <coughs> they said if we got there by 11 o'clock, we could view the body as a church. And I'm going to put you all in seats like this. And I'm going to give you the greatest example of your life. The body's going to be laying up here in a casket. I'm not going to give you his name because I don't want you reading the obituaries all week trying to find this guy out. And I'm going to walk up here and he's going to be laying in this casket and you're all going to be sitting right there and I'm going to say, if I had that nose full of nickels, I wouldn't have to work all week. Look how big, look, when you get down there and think at the edge of that casket, only you can see sticking up his nose. <laughs> that guy's got a snozz on him, doesn't he, Kelly? You know, ever notice how people walk by and they say, he looked good. He looked himself. You ever been at a funeral? How do you think he looked? I think he looked good. I've seen old ladies come up to the, to the whoever and they'd say, honey, your daddy looked really good. Somebody says, how do you think he looked? I think he looked dead. His ears are way out. If he was that ugly in life, it was hard for him to ever swim because the whales kept pushing him back out on the shore. This guy is ugly. His hands are all gnarled and curled up. He looks like he should have died 10, 15 years ago. And I'll tell you what, he looked dead. He got big ears. He got a nose that's as big as Jimmy Durante, and he's just dead. Now, you guys are upset about that. Some of you are already. I can see it. You see it. You know, my point is this. The guy in the casket, he didn't care one way or the other what I said. You know why? He's dead. That's the way you ought to be to this world. Just like that man in the casket. Now, we are not going next week. <laughs> but that's 
the way we ought to be. Let them say what they want to say about you. You're dead. Let them make fun of you. You're dead. It doesn't bother what you say about that guy. He's dead. And when you're dead to Christ, you're alive in Christ, that book. You got the promises, the greatest book in the mission of God. Why does it bother you what somebody says about you? Because you got what you got from God. We need to be dead before we can be alive. Being made conformable unto his death. You know why? Because more missions get canceled because some of you are afraid of what somebody is going to say about what you believe. And because you're so timid about, oh, the church that I go to and what they believe, oh, and they call me a cult, and da 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 I just don't know, I just don't know. You know what, my friend, you need to die and just not care what people say if you know that book's the truth. Simple as that. Then we come to chapter 4. I call chapter 4 my 4th of July chapter. We've all been to fireworks. I love fireworks. You know how fireworks go? <clears throat> you got some guy out there that works for the volunteer fire department that got his psych degree off the internet in fireworks explosions, so he sets all these mortar tubes up. And, <clears throat> and you know, he's down there, and all of a sudden you're sitting down there along the lake, and you're going, poof, poof, everybody goes, all across the lake. <sighs> you know? Then you get a couple of bangers, I like that, and you really shake the whole thing, you know? And then you get this or that. And then at the, you know what it's at the end, because at the end, everything lets loose at once. And you know, it's like, the, it's like at the end of the thing, every tube is popping fireworks. And I mean, they got it beautiful. I mean, a big flag falls down with the sparklings, you know. And I mean, uh, the thing going up, you know. And you can hear some drunk lady across the lake, In the rock, it's red light. You know, she's into the thing, you know. And it's bang, it's, it's a fireworks. You sang it much better than that the last time we were out at the lake. I want you to know that. But. <laughs> this is my fireworks chapter. You know why? All through here, chapter one, it was boom, two great converts. Chapter two, boom, boom, two great principles. Chapter three, boom, boom, two great principles. Chapter four, what a way to end the book. Boom, 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 boom. There's four in this one. Chapter four holds four more of the greatest verses that are absolute to us. For our mission. But I must confess, for most of God's people, literally unknown. Boy, chapter 4, verse 7. Let's get right into it. Here's what it says. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Wow. What a great verse. What a great verse. You know what? If I, if I could package peace of mind... Peace of heart. That is the rarest commodity on the face of planet Earth today. I have never met anybody in my life that didn't want peace in their heart, peace in their life, peace in their family. That is the number one goal of the world. That is the number one goal of couples with marital problems. That's the number one struggle with parents. That's the number one problem with people. Everywhere you go, you find people across this world, across this country, that just want some kind of peace in a world where there just seemingly is no peace. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There is peace. But that peace only comes from the Word of God. 
You see, we live in a very screwed up society today. We really do. I'm going to give you some, a, a, a couple of little concepts here that I, that, I, that I have lived my life by all down through my life. And one of them is real simple. is simply this. You learn, to take, you learn to let God take care of the problems in your life. I'm going to say it again. You learn to let God take care of the problems in your life. You know why? That's His job. So you and I, through the process of building a relationship with God, one of the things that we do is we learn to let God take care of the problems in our lives. That is the first step to having peace. The second step is your job, my job. God's job is to take care of the problems in my life. My job is to learn to take care of the God in my life. That's my job. His job is to take care of me. My job is to take care of Him. Give God what is His. Recognize what God wants and then give it to Him. You want peace? Peace starts with learning that God takes everything in your life and He solves your problem. That's His job. My job is to take care of the God of my life in everything that I do. Did you ever wonder this? Did you ever wonder why in the 1800s, and even in the early part of the 1900s, in our medical vocabulary, there was no word called stress? You realize in the 1800s, there was no problem with midlife crisis? You realize in the 1800s and even the early 1900s, there was no such thing as a nervous breakdown? Hypertension was unheard of. I'm telling you, this whole concept, this whole concept of what we've got in our world today of stress, nervous breakdowns, midlife crisis, all of the things, they become phrases of convenience that have no real significance because it all goes back to we are a country and as Christians, we are Christians without the real peace of God in our lives. I remember a number of years ago. I still laugh about this. I remember a number of years ago, I had a couple come into me for counseling. And they were prominent members in a church. And they had a boy that they just could not control. And this couple, honest to goodness, they had taken this kid to, to everybody that was anybody. She told me they spent $10,000 testing this kid. And at the end of the test of this kid, they came up with the fact that this kid had what they commonly call today ADS. And I said, and she said, well, we have finally, as a last resort, are going to come in and talk to you. Oh, that's great. Uh -huh. You're Christians, and as a last resort, we're going to come to the Bible. I know where I'm going with this already, or I know where they're going with it already. Now, they said, would you talk to our son? And I said, I'd be glad to talk to your son. Where's he at? <clears throat> He said he's out in the waiting room. I said, fine. You guys go in this conference room. Let me go out and bring him in. Kid didn't know who I was. I walked out there. Kid's playing a, I don't even know what they're called, but it was back, that's when Pac-Man was a big deal. He had one of these Pac-Man things that his mom and dad had bought him. And I'm sat down next to him there in the thing in there like I was waiting. He didn't know who I was. And I said, that's really neat. What do you got there? And he says, oh, this is my 
placed whatever it was, Pac-Man on it. And I'll tell you what, that little, you know, with it going around gobbling everything up, coming down through there and just eating up there. And I'm watching this guy and I'm watching this guy. And I said, uh, you're pretty good at that. And he says, yep. He says, I, uh, he says, to tell the truth, he says, I'm, a, I'm the champion in my school. Uh, he says, uh, he said, let me show you my score. He called up something on his little thing there. And he had won, he had won out of 5,000 games. He had won 4,200 and some games. He was the highest thing in the world. And I immediately, when I walked back to the office, I thought to myself, that kid doesn't have DDS. He has selective ADS. Please don't tell me that your kid can't sit in school and focus when he can get a Pac-Man game and beat everybody in the world. Now, you know what the doctor's solution was? Let's put him on drugs. Well, that'll always help. That'll always help. How come there was none of that in the 1800s? I'll tell you why. Because kids went to work when they were 12 years old and they earned a living. Because they didn't get off the farm till night. They didn't have any TV. They didn't have any Pac-Man. They worked for a living. They live a value system. And they had moms and dads saved or lost that believed there was an eternal judgment someday that understood the concept of God. That's why. And it wasn't run to the world first to solve it. When they had a problem, it was go to God first. You know what this world will do? This world will say, I'll pay. You know what that family was telling me? They were telling me that I told, I'll pay $10,000. I will pay you $10,000 if you just will tell me that this problem is not my fault. I'll pay you any amount of money in the world if you'll just confirm for me that my lackadaisical godless lifestyle without any discipline in it caused this problem. Tell me it's a sickness. Tell me it's a, it's a society problem. Tell me that it's a real thing that my kid can win Pac-Man game after Pac-Man, but he can't sit still in school for five minutes without having problems. Tell me that that's a genetic defect like the dog across the street. No, my friend, when I got into the details, I saw the problem. Mom and dad divorced. Kid was the last thought. Mom and dad didn't want anything to do with him. Gave him everything he wanted. You know what the kid did? He selected what he wanted to focus on and what he didn't want to focus on. And he comes to the... Let me tell you something. If you can win Pac-Man that many times, you can be valedictorian of your class when you graduate. You can go to Harvard. They play Pac-Man there all the time. You'd be fit right in, man. You want peace? Peace is the greatest commodity that people will pay for today. Because it's lacking in this world. You know where it comes from? It comes from the Word of God and your own personal relationship with God. It starts with you learning to take care of Him. He'll take care of you. You give Him what's His. He'll give you what's hers. But I'm telling you right now, my friend, there's no peace. No peace, no mission. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. Oh, boy. What a great one. Wants versus needs. Oh, the grass is greener on the other side, Bob. Yeah, but where do you see the water bill? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, But godliness with content is great gain. Oh, these are impossible verses for most of God's people today. I see it driving around on big trucks, redneck trucks. Big trucks driving around on a bumper and says, the difference between men and boys is only the size of their toys. He who dies with the most wins. I was out the world of fun yesterday walking around. I saw three girls wearing a t-shirt. You know what it said? I saw it. I wanted it. I threw a fit and I got it. That's where we're at today. 
Only the girls who were wearing it were 12, 13, and 14. The ones I'm thinking about are probably in their 40s and their 50s. The rationalizational process for an undisciplined lifestyle. Hey, you know what? If you can't afford it, save for it. Builds character, builds patience. And you'll probably find out halfway through you really didn't want it anyhow. If you can't get what you finally want, and then you, if you finally get what you think you want and you have to work two jobs and strap yourself, that God comes out last all the time and kill yourself to pay for it, you know what? God was probably not in it. You see, success in your mind may be getting what you want, but contentment is being successful with what you already have. And that's the key. That's the key. Another great one is in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Every time I hear that quoted today, I always hear, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And that destroys the whole doctrine of the whole Bible of how Christ does things in your life. It isn't God that comes down and strengthens you. It's the things that you begin to do for Him, the which that God takes in your life. That's what this church is all about. You see, I'll start with you in the Bible. I'll start you to lay out the Word of God. I'll start to give you the concept, the principles. you start to put it all together. And then somewhere in the process, you'll step out by faith and you'll do something for God. When you step out by faith and you do something for God, then you come to the point where God takes that and He strengthens you by it, and then you do something else. And it's like stair steps going up. When every time you do something else, God strengthens you more, and pretty soon you get to the point where you can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. It's the things that you do that strengthens you. It isn't, but see, we live in a generation that doesn't want to do anything for God. We just want God to come down and dump it on us. That's not the way it works in the Bible. Then lastly, chapter 4, verse 19, what a way to end the book. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory, by Christ Jesus. Again, every time I hear somebody quote it, <coughs> they always say, my God shall supply all of your needs, plural. It isn't needs, plural. It's needs, singular. You know why? <coughs> Just like we studied in the book of Galatians, when it was nine fruit of the Spirit, it was singular. It wasn't plural. You know why? Because God deals with your problems one at a time, individually. He never puts it in a plural phase because God knows the great principle of the book of Proverbs that you're not to boast yourself of tomorrow. You're, not to, you're, 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 you're to just look for today. And Proverbs 27, 1 says that, that that's the way it's supposed to be. And so God supply all of your need. He takes care of what you need today. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You know why? Tomorrow may never come if Jesus Christ comes today. And if it does, then the next day may not. And if that day does, it may not come the next day. But the bottom line is God looks at it as one need as a time. See, we got all kinds of people out there that talks about this claim it, you know, name it deal. How you're supposed to have everything. You got to have everything you want. The greatest thing, you, the worst thing you could ever do to yourself is to give you everything you want. Somebody says, well, my, 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 my father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I believe that. But you know what? Sometimes he only gives it to you one hamburger at a time. Because he knows what we'll do with it. Our life simply comes down to one great concept. And I close with this. And it is, what can God trust you with today? What can God trust you for in your life today? God has a mission for you. He's got one for me. What can God trust me with? Now, you've heard me speak for the last hour and ten minutes about nine great concepts that was the most 
in the, given to the most favorite church that Paul wrote to. Nine of them. Because nine in your Bible is fruit bearing. You want to be a fruitful Christian? Let me help you put these nine things in your life. And I'm going to say it again. I don't care what problems you have. I don't care what marital problems you have. I don't care what personal problems you have. I don't care what you're struggling with. There's always something to do if you're willing to do it. At some point in your life, ladies and gentlemen, at some point in your life, moms and dads, at some point in your life as a child of God, you have to clear up a spot and say, I'm going to build my relationship with God right from here. And when you get to that point, I want to be there to help you. We'll do it however you want to do it. I'll take whatever you want to take. The bottom line is, when you were a young person growing up, you didn't take out there and start running. Somebody helped you walk. That's all I want to do. So I want to help you walk. I want to help you get to the place where you stand on your own two feet that these nine great biblical concepts will fit into your life, that you can stand on these. Because, my friend, this is what builds the mission. This is what you have to have to understand. The key in your life is your relationship with Jesus Christ, letting God supply all of your needs, building that relationship with Him in every aspect, being content with where you're at, with what you have, being successful with what God has given you, not looking way outside and all the things that you don't have, but being content with where God wants you to be. It goes back to the mission, He and He alone. It goes back to understanding that the day you got saved, God began a good work in you. And the only question you've got to ask yourself today, how's that work going? Where are you at in your relationship with God and the Word of God from that point to this point? Philadelphian Christians, I'll take them all the time. I'll say it again. You can have as much of me in that book as you can stand because that is the most fun thing in this world is spending time with God's people around the book that God gave us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you.